Just a quick heads up, a little warning going into before this episode begins. There may be a little bit of salty language, um, including, I think, one F-bomb. So if you have young children or if you have a sensitive ear of your own or you don't want to have to explain what certain words mean, like the F-bomb, because you just don't have the time and you're not ready to have that conversation yet, you may want to skip this episode or you may want to listen to it in advance before you let young and young and or impressionable people listen to the episode. Just a fair warning, a little bit of salty language early on in this episode and a couple of spots throughout. Enjoy the show. Welcome to I Have So Many Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. I am your host, Brian Watson. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring in new listeners as I work towards establishing my cult of personality, which, as I've repeatedly stated, is the sole purpose of this entire endeavor. Here's how you can get in touch with the show. The email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is at I have so many pod or just look for I have so many questions podcast in the search function of your Twitter app, facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast shows on Instagram. Don't bother. This delightful program is hosted on anchor.fm and through their mobile app streaming elsewhere on Spotify, Stitcher, Google podcasts, overcast, Castbox, pocket cast, breaker, radio public, and of course, iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Please review the show's open submission policy, which is pinned, which is the pinned tweet on the Twitter page for this show. There's also a brief quick hit episode in regards to the open submission policy, which basically means if you want to be a guest on the show, if you want to contribute to the show, if you want to be a guest host of the show, if you want to be a permanent guest host of the show, or if you just want to take over the whole freaking thing from me outright for the right price, let me know. This show is going to be a little bit different from previous episodes, and I'm pretty sure about every other episode I say, this one's going to be a little bit different than what I've done before. This one will be a little bit different, sort of. Not really. I was on Facebook last night on my first personal Facebook account. I don't do much with the Facebook page for the show. I probably should, but I don't. Uh, mostly because I find Twitter to be way more, I just think Twitter's better for the, for a podcast um, than Facebook is. I'm on Facebook last night, Sunday night, four day weekends over. I actually got the day after Thanksgiving off, which is only like the third time that's happened in the, like the last 17 years. I was super stoked. Company holiday. It was great. But Sunday night, I'm on Facebook after a weekend of eating exceptionally high caloric food in large quantities and somehow getting through the entire weekend without my kids finding out that they're going to be getting a puppy in the next week or two. If you follow the show's Twitter account, you know what I'm talking about here. Going through my news feed and I've come across a friend of mine from high school. She's a Trumpster, conservative, although she's one of those Trump people or conservative people who if you really sat down with them for 15 minutes and really probed as to what they believe and why they believe it, you wouldn't get very satisfactory answers or you wouldn't get the impression that there was a lot of thought 
put into it as much as is much as it is kind of a, a reflex or a reactionary type of thing, which is what you get from a lot of Trump supporters is it's a reflex. It's a reactionary type of thing. They're not so much supporting Trump as much as they're, they're supporting owning the libs. She posted a meme and the meme was a disparaging meme about it was a disparaging meme about transgendered people and gender fluid people. It was a cop talking into a, his radio, trying to describe a suspect or a perpetrator and using a lot of disparaging language, a lot of ambiguous, gender ambiguous language regarding appearance and attire and that type of thing. And it was clearly intended to disparage transgendered and gender fluid people. And I went off. In five minutes, I typed out a rant about not so much about this meme, but basically kind of a generalized call out to people who make fun of transgendered people. You don't have to agree with them, okay? You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to accept them. But when did not accepting or not agreeing with lead to or equate with disparaging, insulting, demeaning? And I'm sure there are a bunch of people who probably say, well, Brian, you do the same thing with in regards to Trump and Trump supporters and all that kind of stuff all the time, blah, 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 blah. And you may be right. I may may do that. But there's a difference between criticizing a belief and criticizing who someone is. And if your belief is so embedded in your identity that you cannot separate the two, and therefore to insult your belief is to insult who you are, to demean you as an individual, then there's an issue there, but the issue is not going to be with me. The issue is going to be with you. Any belief, idea, or thought can and should be open to question and to criticism, period. Transgendered people, gender fluid people, it is not a belief. It is not a thought. It is not an idea. It is a part of who they are. It is an ambiguity. It is an ambiguity. It is an ambivalence. It is about self-discovery. It is about trying to find out who you are. But it's not based on an idea. It's not based on a belief. It's not based on a thought. It's based on a feeling, a sense of self, an intuition, sort of. Thoughts, ideas, beliefs are absolutely fair game. And you should be able to go to counter or even insult because let's face it, we don't really, the flat earth society, they don't need to be countered. They need to be insulted. Scientologists probably don't need to be countered. They need to be insulted. But any thought, idea, or belief can and should be open to question, criticism, and so on. But you should be able to do so without attacking and demeaning the individual because you're not going after the person, you're going after the idea. But transgendered and gender fluid people are not, they're not adhering to an ideology. They're not adhering to a belief system. They're just trying to find out who they are, a part of themselves, not their totality. I've never seen anybody who is LGBTQ+, whose entire identity was based on their chosen, well, not necessarily chosen, based on their orientation. I can't. But this meme set me off. And I, and wrote, a, I wrote a rant. I ranted. A long Facebook post. 
And basically, the the gist of the post was the meme was it was criticizing those who don't fault those people who do not adhere to masculine and feminine archetypes. And the rant was about how those masculine and feminine archetypes are entirely social constructs. They have absolutely nothing. There is no innate masculinity. There is no innate femininity. You are born, if you're male, you're born with a penis and testicles. And those penis and testicles, the only purpose they serve is to perpetuate the species, except for the nice little bonus that it allows us to pee standing up. The penis and testicles are a sperm delivery system and nothing more for the purpose of, of inseminating and fertilizing eggs that are, the female has in her womb that come from, that come from her egg sacs to the, through the fallopian tubes into the uterus. Uterus. Sperm meets egg. Fertilization occurs. If all goes well, procreation. Perpetuation of the species. That is all that shit does. Anything that comes after that in terms of characteristics are entirely social constructs. There is no innate masculinity or femininity simply because you have a penis and testicles or you have a vagina and a uterus. There isn't. Biology and evolution does not give a flying fuck about that. All it cares about is perpetuation. There are two things that we are innately born with. Two urges that we have when we are born. They don't necessarily kick in at the same time. One kicks in almost immediately. The other one kicks in at about anywhere from 10 to 14 years old. The first one is survival. And survival is entirely a perpetuation of the species thing. You cannot procreate if you're dead. Survival is automatically and almost instant. When you hear about those babies, those newborn babies who has such a strong will to live. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a character study of that baby. That's about, that's a survival instinct, but that's all survival instinct. That's biology. That is embedded innately in the DNA and the chromosomes. Perpetuation of the species comes when you hit puberty, when your body goes through the changes necessary for procreation. And that's all puberty is. It is the changes. It is to go through the process, especially at least in mammals, at least in humans. Do animals, do other, do other mammals go through puberty? Question for another time. Evolution and biology, human biology, doesn't care about anything else. Any other characteristics that have emerged based on whether you have a penis and testicles or whether you have a vagina and a uterus is entirely a social construct, period. So definitions of femininity, definitions of masculinity are entirely social, societal constructions. And they change over time. What was masculine 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 2000 years ago is not the same as it is now. The same with femininity. And it depends on, not only depend, it depends on the society in which you live, but it also, it depends on the society, society in which you live and in the time in which it exists. American society 50 years ago is different than American society today or 100 years ago or 150 years ago. And, it, and then it varies even more when you break it down by, by race, by economic status and so forth. There's so many ways you could parse that, but it is all a social construct. And that was my rant. And, and it, it, it motivated me to move on to, to accelerate my timetable for the identity podcast, the identity episode. And I think though, that's going to be a quick hit because the way I have, the way I have boiled down identity won't really require me to 
elaborate for a full episode versus a quick hit. Identity is also one of those things where me just talking about it for an hour is except would be exceptionally unenlightening, really. That's the type of thing where guests and input from others would be. That's the type of topic where the open submissions policy is perfectly and in, perfectly intended for, for that type of thing. So went on a rant on Facebook last night and I got done and I posted it. And as I did with the incel episode and as I did with the profanity episode, I thought about pulling it. I thought about deleting it, um, but ultimately I decided, no, this was something that needed to be said. If anything, I will provoke either thought or dissent or a conversation or a fight. Cause at that point I was looking to pick a fight. I was looking for somebody to push back on this. And so far with it 24 hours later, nobody has, but it got me thinking about rants. And that's what this episode's gonna be. It's gonna be about rants. In particular, I have three specific rants that I'm going to go into. And I love rants, I really do. I use, I've, for 25 years, I've gone off on rants. For those of you my age or older, you may remember a comedian named Dennis Miller, who back in the 90s had a show on HBO, a Friday night show on HBO. Before this was kind of politically incorrect or real time with Bill Maher before real time with Bill Maher. Dennis Miller kind of set the blueprint for this and Bill Maher followed it up with politically incorrect on ABC. And then he went when he went to HBO with the show he still does now. But back in the 90s, after Dennis Miller left the, the news desk on Saturday Night Live, which he'd been at for at least five years, he went he was a stand-up comedian. He got a show on HBO. Um, this was during the Clinton era because he really, he kind of reached his zenith during the Clinton era. Dennis Miller had the show on HBO and it was in very similar in format to Bill Maher's show. Opening monologue, guest, maybe a couple of guests, a panel, and then he'd have a, um, he'd have a closing segment. Actually, he did kind of a news, a news desk type of thing on that show as well. He would end the show with this monologue that was a rant and he'd always prep, he'd have an introduction and then he, and then when the moment you realize he was about to go off was he, he, he would preface it with say, now I don't want to go on a rant here. Now I don't want to go off on a rant here, but, and then he'd go off on the rant and the rant would be like five minutes and be exceptionally obscure pop cultural references of all kinds. The, the kind of thing that Dennis Miller was known for. Uh, this was before he went to his disastrous one-year stint on Monday Night Football. And then he went, then after 9-11, he went full bore Fox News doing O'Reilly. And I think now every time I see Dennis Miller, he's uh, guest hosting on Larry King's show that's on RT America. So basically Dennis Miller sold a, sold a soul to Vladimir Putin, basically. But I love those rants. And Dennis Miller turned them into books. And audiobooks, the book was okay. The audiobook version was better. And it was a compendium of the rants that he did on his show or rants and then other rants that he would come up with. But I bought like three of those books, um, all audiobooks, and I loved them and listened to them repeatedly. I think I bought them as Christmas presents for my mother. But I loved rants. And for the longest time, especially when I was younger, I would go off on rants. Uh, my mother at one point, told me to buy one of those little mini tape recorders. This was in the 90s, kids. And then, you know, if I was going to go off on a rant, have the recorder with me and press record. Yeah, that never happened. It never worked. I never had the recorder with me and I never... It's kind of one of those things where you just... You can't interrupt the flow 
You have to just go with it. You just have to let it go, run its course, and then you're done. And if you turn on a tape recorder, if you have to consciously... Now, if somebody were with me and they had the tape recorder and they recorded me without me knowing it, that would have worked. But me consciously whipping out the recorder, turning it on, and then going on the rant, something about those, you know, maybe less than 60 seconds, and then it's gone. The impulse is just gone. My wife, when I met my wife... I still was had the I was still prone to do the ranting. My wife hates the ranting. Hated the ranting. And basically kind of culminated with, you know what? I don't care. Fine, whatever. Let me know when you're done. I don't care. And it didn't matter what I was ranting about. Because she just, you know, she lived with me. This was the type of thing that happened on a regular basis. And usually it's something to do with something I saw in the news or something like that. Being the political junkie, you can imagine the the uh, the plethora of rants about that topic. And she just got sick of it. At a certain point, when you don't have an audience for that type of thing, ranting just makes you look like you're crazy. So eventually I stopped. For the most part. If I was around my family, my mom, my sister, my brother-in-law, my dad, or maybe at a family function, I think they would intentionally try to provoke me to get a rant. Because my rants could be pretty funny. When it's stream of consciousness, when you're just... Take your feet off when you take your foot off the brake and just let it go. A lot of inspired stuff can occur. And I think that's kind of what they were shooting for. A little amusement, something to make them laugh. And at the same time, getting my insights on whatever it was they wanted to know my opinion about. But I love rants. Let's start with rant number one. Have you ever or have you watched The View? This would be the show. I think it's on at 11 o'clock on ABC every day where you have four or five women sitting around a table talking about the news of the day. It started about, I don't know, 15 to 20 years ago. It was started by Barbara Walters when she was at ABC. And Barbara Walters was a pioneer in television news especially for women in television news. And she started this show, and the concept was to bring in a group of diverse women to to get their thoughts and their ideas about the news of the day, to kind of lift up, and it was kind of a an effort to kind of raise the level of discussion, because by the, the conceit being that women are more thoughtful, more enlightened, um, more considerate, about these issues than men are so you would get a higher level of conversation the only problem is that that never fucking happened ever that might have been her intent but from the moment she had all those people together from the first iteration to the multiple iterations that there have been since it has been perfectly clear that the entire purpose of the view is a kind of high-minded real housewives of whatever Okay, the view could be on Bravo. In the beginning, I think it was Meredith Vieira before she went on the Today Show, Joy Behar, who's still there, Star Jones and Debbie Matanopoulos, who came and went just like that because it was clear she didn't know anything about anything and she just looked dumb. And then I think they replaced her with Lisa Ling, who was there for a couple years and then decided she was too, she was the only adult in the room. 
And that's saying something given that Meredith Vieira was there, but Meredith Vieira got sucked in. But anyway, every iteration of the show, and then there was Rosie O'Donnell and Elizabeth Hasselbeck, and then there was, you know, there was the whole thing with Star Jones and her wedding, which I think her marriage lasted three years, if that. Then there was, shit, I can't think of it. Rosie O'Donnell left, came back for a brief period, for a brief moment. Rosie O'Donnell, when Rosie O'Donnell was on The View, I think that was when she was feuding. She might have been feuding with Trump at that point, but I think it might have been when she went and got her own show, her uh, daytime variety talk show. That was the template for Ellen DeGeneres' gig. And now, to these days, oh, I'm sorry, Meredith Vieira left, and then I think they brought in Whoopi Goldberg after that. And Meredith Vieira and Whoopi Goldberg kind of served the same purpose. They're supposed to be the, the older, wiser person at the table who's essentially supposed to act as the moderator slash referee slash conductor keeping the train moving on time which is a thankless job on that show it's a thankless job when Rosie O'Donnell's on there it's a thankless job when Elizabeth Hasselbeck's on there it's a thankless job when Joy Behar and Megan McCain who are on there now it's a thankless job and certainly beneath their talent and ability. But before anybody starts going down the misogyny rabbit hole on this, well, this is just Brian hating on women. The only reason anybody watches The View is for the catfighting, the backbiting, the catfighting, the internecine warfare that goes on on that show day in and day out. The only reason anybody watches The View, it's not because Donald Trump Jr. is going to be on there hawking his shitty ass book. It's because they want to they want to see what happens between Megan McCain and Joy Behar, because every day on my news feed, and I use this app called Smart News, which it's not really. It's a poorly advertised, or almost there I say almost falsely advertised app, but it's a news aggregator, and every day there's at least one article about the View, and it's usually about Joy Behar and Megan McCain almost coming to blows because they can't stand each other and Whoopi Goldberg half tempted to slap them both upside the head and somehow for whatever reason chooses not to every day and as far back as I can remember that's what the view has been nobody watches that show to learn anything oh Sherry Shepard was on there too then she got fired a long time ago nobody watches that show for a higher level of conversation or discussion about the issues of the day And all you hear about the stories about that show is about the catfighting, the backbiting, the betrayals, the, the, uh, the passive aggressiveness, all that kind of stuff. That's all you hear about. The view to my mind is actually undermining what supposed mission statement is. And it's done that since its inception. If you want to have a high minded discussion about the news of the day, you don't have a former actress, an actress and stand-up, former stand-up comedian and Whoopi Goldberg be the moderator with Joy Behar. She's, if there's a liberal version of Jesse Waters or Greg Gutfeld on Fox News, it's Joy Behar, okay? She is that vacuous and that empty of a vessel. And the worst part is, is that she thinks she's funny. She's there to be comedy relief and she's not funny. Now, Whoopi Goldberg could be funny. Let her be the comedy relief. Let her be the snarky one. 
or you know let her tell the jokes but she doesn't get to do that because she's too busy playing mma ref you've got joy behar there you've got I think one of the ladies now, Sunny Hostin, who I think was on Fox News previously. Then there's another lady who I think she was a lawyer, maybe a defense attorney. I can't remember her name. And then there's Megan McCain. And I, before she was on The View, I liked Megan McCain. You'd see her on TV, usually on, she'd be on a panel on some cable news show. And she was thoughtful. She was fair-minded. She was... She acted very much like a millennial. And then I don't know if it's be, I don't know if it's just from being on the view or it could be a combination of being on the view and the man that she's married to, who's the editor-in-chief and founder of The Federalist. He better be really fucking charming when he's not working because he's a total douchebag. So, he better be one charming motherfucker. But I digress. But you watch Megan McCain on the view, and it's like, who the fuck are you? Really, you're a shill. You're shilling for conservatism. Actually, you're not even shilling for conservatism. You're shilling for a demographic of sorts. She's supposed to be like the conservative voice, but she's not. She's being a shill. She's not articulating any conservative principles. She doesn't defend Trump because Trump hated her father. And that's the only reason she's not defending Trump is because of all the horrible shit that he said and did he said about her dad not about anything else that he does how he's a despicable human being in all other ways besides the fact that he shit on her father but you watch that show and I watch that show and I'm like this is an insult to women if this is supposed to be raising the level of discourse with the premise being that women that by putting a panel of women together day in and day out all every day talking about the news of the day this is supposed to raise the level of discussion you are insulting women by doing this shit by putting this shit out there because this is not how women talk about the news of the day this is how people think women talk about the news of the day and if that's what people think women how women talk about the news of the day then you're insulting women because this ain't it so this whole now granted Barbara Walters isn't there anymore. She's she's got to be in her late 80s at this point and I believe she's battling issues with dementia, possibly Alzheimer's. So she's not there day to day and she hasn't been for years. But this was her baby. And this is kind of the way the view has been since its inception. You don't pick you don't pick Rosie O'Donnell or Star Jones or Elizabeth Hasselbeck or Sherry Shepard to to bring a to bring a, a diverse to bring diverse voices to the news to, to talk about the news of the day from a women's point of view and I just as someone who was raised by grew up with and was raised by strong women married to a strong woman just about every woman I know or I've interacted with in my 40 almost 45 years have been exceptionally strong women thoughtful intelligent grounded women to watch the view and for it to be held up as some kind of exemplar of high-minded feminine thought and ideas is insulting. It just is. It's insulting to women. There are shit tons of podcasts out there hosted, written, produced, and hosted by women. And they're wonderful. There's tons of independent podcasts out there. People putting in the work. Women putting in the work. Audio dramas. Oz 9. Oh my God, I love Oz 9. 
Oz9 is an audio drama comedy, and it's wonderful. If you get a chance, check out Oz9. But it's written by and produced by a woman. She does it all, except for some of the technical stuff and obviously the voice acting. She's got a plethora of actors, and they're all hysterical. They're really good. But she writes the whole, she writes everything. She produces everything. It's her baby. And she did it as a, as a means to get her work out there. She was a writer. She was having a hard time evidently getting out there, getting her product out there, her work product out there. So she came up with this creative way to do so, to demonstrate her ability to write and to produce. But she also, she performs two roles on the show. She's a voice actress as well. And she's really, really good. Her, uh, she performs the AI Olivia and she's just, just wonderful. I love that accent. It's spectacular. But all those podcasts are personifications of high-minded thoughts, high-minded thought and conversation and discourse that women can provide and bring to the news of the day or to anything of the day. Not the fucking view. Rant number two. Fuck Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. This is like... Okay, let me back up. A few weeks back, Martin Scorsese, who just released his three and a half hour long Netflix produced movie called The Irishman, which is about the right hand man to Jimmy Hoffa, supposedly. Although it has a lot of historical inaccuracies. But it's a three and a half hour mob movie, basically. Oh my God, Martin Scorsese's done a mob movie. Who'd have thunk it? In the process of doing some promotion or doing interviews in regards to this movie, which from what I understand has not been well received. It just came out in the last, I think over Thanksgiving week, over the Thanksgiving holiday, it was released by Netflix. And it's not getting, compared to other, the rest of Scorsese's work, it's not getting a warm reception. It's really long. It's three and a half hours long. I mean, Casino wasn't this long. And Casino's a long movie. But it's three and a half hours long. And it's, from what I understand, a lot of the, lot of the criticism is that it's really boring. But Scorsese's doing interviews in the lead up to the release of this movie. And he decides to do some Marvel bashing. Marvel in particular, but comic book movies in general. And he doesn't watch them. He doesn't like them. He doesn't think they're... He doesn't think of them as quote-unquote cinema. They don't have the artistic merit to be classified as cinema. And he kicks up a solid gold shitstorm. And he doesn't like the fact that just about everything that's out there these days is comic book movies. So he puts that out there and it, and it kicks up a solid gold shitstorm. Then you have Godfather director Francis Ford Coppola who hasn't made a movie since the 90s, I believe. I think the last movie he might have directed was that Robin Williams movie, Jack, where Robin Williams played a kid who uh, had rapid aging syndrome, even though that's not how rapid aging syndrome actually works. Coppola directed that movie. And I think that might've been the last movie he made. He decided to retire, retire into bourgeois senility making wine, which is another shocker. Anyway, Coppola jumped in to pile on and basically and said, 
rather explicitly that comic book movies and Marvel movies are shit. They're pieces of shit, I think is what he would call them, to be more precise. And this raised up a solid gold shitstorm because here you've got these two acclaimed directors who are criticizing modern movies, modern movies, exceptionally popular modern movies, except for a lot of the DC stuff, but they're starting to get their act together, starting with Wonder Woman. It was the ultimate kids get the fuck off my lawn type of thing from these two guys. It raised up a shitstorm. Scorsese published an editorial, I think, in the New York Times defending himself that his critique of comic book movies and superhero movies was that they there's no psychological exploration. There's no in-depth exploration of the soul and the meaning of humanity and all this kind of stuff, which clearly means he's not watched the MCU. He doesn't consider it cinema. He doesn't consider it high art. He, he feels that comic book movies are crowding out other film. All these other movies can't get made because everybody's... The studios are only spending money on comic book movies. They won't, they won't spend money on a three and a half hour movie about uh, called The Irishman about a mobster. Or the right hand of Jimmy Hoffa. Well, excuse us, Marty. But it's the ultimate cognitive dissonance because, one, Scorsese, all he's ever done is make the same... Almost his entire filmography is the same goddamn movie. From Mean Streets to Taxi Driver to Raging Bull to Goodfellas to Casino to the fucking Irishman, The Departed. All Scorsese knows how to do is make gangster movies. Movies about bad people. Now, he's had divergences. Did you know that Martin Scorsese directed The Last Temptation of Christ? Did not know that. He's done, he, I think he did a kid's movie called Hugo, which nobody saw. He did a movie about missionaries in Japan called Silence, which I want to see because I love Japan. That movie was like three hours long. Nobody saw it. He's had divergences, but he keeps coming back to mobsters. Martin Scorsese has not made one movie where the lead actor was a woman. He said... Movies with strong supporting supporting actresses, Lorraine Bracco in uh, Goodfellas, Sharon Stone in Casino, but he's not directed one movie about a woman. He's not directed one movie where the lead actress was a woman. He's not directed one movie where the lead actor was African-American, but he keeps coming back to gangster movies, and they're basically all the same fucking movie. And he, he criticized comic book movies because they don't do in-depth character studies. None of his movies are in-depth character studies. Maybe Raging Bull. But that's because it was about a real fucking guy named Jake LaMotta. Mean Streets, not a character study. Taxi Driver, not a fucking character study. It's about a psychopath. Raging Bull, also about a psychopath, except for he was real. The Last Temptation of Christ, which I've not seen, but you could argue that it's about a character study about Jesus in his final days, questioning him, questioning himself, questioning God, questioning his beliefs. You can make that argument. Goodfellas is not a character study. It's about a despicable people doing despicable shit. And then at the end of it, you've got Ray Liotta not learning a goddamn thing and bitching about the fact that he's got a, a bitching about the quality of his pasta. It's not a character study. Ray Liotta doesn't change. Ray Liotta doesn't learn a goddamn thing from the beginning of that movie to the end of that movie. It is not a character study. Unless your character study is to say, these people are pieces of shit. Casino, not really a character study because 
De Niro is no different at the end of that movie than he was at the beginning. De Niro doesn't learn anything. There's no growth to that character. There's no growth to the Joe Pesci. Although watching Joe Pesci get beat to death with a baseball bat is kind of is enjoyable because Pesci in Scorsese movies, Pesci's there to die. He dies horribly in Goodfellas, but you don't feel bad about that because he deserved to fucking die. He dies a horrible death in Casino, and you don't feel bad about that because he deserved to fucking die. But Scorsese's not made one movie with a lead actress. Made one movie about a woman, starring a woman. He's not made one movie about an African-American or led by an African-American. As a matter of fact, can anybody think of an actor, a prominent actor, African-American actor in a Scorsese movie? Whoever played Joe Lewis in Raging Bull? Because I can't. So it's rich for Scorsese to criticize comic book movies. And Coppola is a different story. I don't, you know what, Coppola is exactly the same way. Francis Ford Coppola has never directed a movie about a woman led by an actress, never directed a movie about an African-American or led by an African-American. Godfather films? No. Yet Diane Keaton and that was it. That shitty stunt casting with his daughter because Winona Ryder wisely pulled out of Godfather Part 3 because she's like, I'm not, I'm not in this shit show. She then went on to do Coppola's Dracula, which I enjoy. I, I, I enjoy that movie. But again, she's a supporting player. She's not the lead actress. Apocalypse Now? The only women in Apocalypse Now are the playmates on that helipad. Coppola has not made one movie about a woman, led by a woman, or led by an African-American. Coppola has not made a lot of movies, period. It was kind of like after Apocalypse Now, I think he did The Outsiders, which again, a bunch of white males, not one lead actress in that movie. And he did some other movies after that, but he only like three or four. He didn't do a lot, and then he just retired. For those two directors who keep making the same fucking movies over and over again, involved and entirely centered up around white males for them to criticize comic book movies because they don't do in-depth character study you look at tony stark and iron man to look at to, to where tony stark is by iron man 3 by civil war and by endgame you have a complete character arc you have the most in-depth character study of any comic book character ever the same with captain america the same with Black Widow. The same with, um, not really with the Hulk, because Banner really doesn't change all that much until you get to like Endgame and then it's just a complete, you know, completely unexpected. Wolverine. Look where Wolverine was in the first X-Men movie to where he is by the time you get to the Wolverine and by the time you get to Logan. Clearly Scorsese has never seen Logan. Charles Xavier from X-Men to Logan. Shit. Christian Bale's Batman in the Dark Knight trilogy. Character development. In-depth character study. Please. Scorsese only knows, to tell, only knows how to tell movies about specific types of characters. He doesn't know how to do anything else. The same with Coppola. That's why Coppola doesn't make any movies anymore. And the biggest thing about these two well-respected, highly regarded directors is that they don't understand that the movie business is a business. Which is funny because Coppola is a well-known producer. He's produced shit tons more movies than he's directed. So you'd think they'd understand how, and it's clear that they haven't ever, it's clear that they haven't gone to a movie theater and actually paid for a fucking movie ticket in quite some time, probably decades. It costs $12.50 for a standard definition movie for one person. $12.50, not the matinee, 
the evening. If you go on a Friday night to the movies, $12.50 just to buy one ticket. It's more if it's 3D. It because it's I think it's $3 more if it's 3D. It's even more so if it's some sort of enhanced theater and IMAX. Oh my god, I think it's so I think IMAX is 20 bucks for one ticket. You take a family of four to standard definition movie, you're paying out 50 bucks for tickets. And that's before concessions. A large drink for one person is like $6.50. Popcorn, a large popcorn is another $6.50 for one person. Fortunately, with large popcorn, a large drink, you can share. And a lot of movie theaters anymore, you can get free refills on both. So they at least do that. But if you want to buy candy or if you want to buy anything else, oh my God, they have hot dogs. They got pretzels. A lot of them anymore have booze. You can get alcohol. They got a bar. All that shit costs money. By the time it's all said and done to go to a movie, you're spending for a family of four. You're spending a hundred dollars. Are you going to want to spend a hundred dollars for a family of four to go see the fucking Irishman, which is a three and a half hour gangster movie? No. You're going to go to see a movie that your kids want to see. It's going to be a Disney movie, or it's going to be an animated movie, or it's going to be a comic book movie, or it's going to be Star Wars. That's why all these movie, that's why all these studios are trying to come up with a franchise is because they're trying to get kids to go see movies. They want kids, they're trying to get kids into the theaters to go see these movies. Well, kids aren't going to go see the fucking Irishman. All right. They're just not. So if you're a studio, are you going to finance Martin Scorsese's three and a half hour biopic, supposed biopic about the right hand man of Jimmy Hoffa? No. Are you going to finance another another gangster movie by Martin Scorsese? No. If you are, you're going to give him $20 million because you hope you make $50 million. That's why The Irishman's on Netflix, because wasn't going to be able to get any studio to make that movie and distribute it. So it's clear that those two are completely disconnected from the modern movie experience over the last two decades, at least, if not longer. So much so that they've been reduced to nothing more than grumpy old men. And sadly, I think to a point, Spielberg's starting to join them, given his kind of jihad against Netflix or Netflix movies. Which is interesting because that kind of puts him at odds with Scorsese because The Irishman's on Netflix. Spielberg had a thing last year, earlier this year or last year, about any movie that was on Netflix shouldn't be considered for Oscars because it wasn't put in a theater. It wasn't distributed in movie theaters. So Netflix, what they did was, and I think they did this with The Irishman, is that they put it like in two theaters or they did a limited run in like Los Angeles and New York, maybe Chicago. For a limited time, they put it in a theater. So they could get around that. It's like all those independent movies and those Oscar bait movies that nobody ever sees. Okay. Can somebody name the last movie that won best picture that people actually saw? The Return of the King, maybe? That was 2003. That's why the Oscars expanded to 10 best picture candidates so that they could include popular movies. They weren't going to win, but you could include them hoping that people would watch the Oscars, which didn't fucking happen. But when Scorsese in particular and Coppola piled, Coppola piled on, it just really pissed me off because it's like, you know what? You guys, you're basically bitching about the fact that nobody watches your shit. Nobody that people don't like what you like. So it's like kids getting, you know, get off my goddamn lawn type of thing. 
it's the grumpy old man sitting on the porch complaining about how complaining about you know wishing for the good old days when they were relevant get over it move on get a life evolve adapt free your mind Rant number three. Why do movies flop? In the last couple of months, there have been three high-profile movies that were released and bombed. The first one was Dr. Sleep, which was the uh, Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. And by sequel to The Shining, I mean Stephen King's book, The Shining, not the Stanley Kubrick film, which Stephen King hates with every fiber of his being. In fact, there's an argument to be made, and I think King might have said so himself, that he wrote Dr. Sleep to as to kind of as a counter narrative to Kubrick's The Shining, even though King wrote Dr. Sleep like three year, three or four years ago and The Shining came out in 1981. So evidently it's been sticking in Stephen King's crawl for a long time. But the movie comes out, stars Ewan McGregor, who I love, and it bombs. Nobody sees it. From what I understand, it gets fairly decent reviews. Nobody sees it. The second movie that comes out is Terminator Dark Fate. The sixth Terminator movie. And the first movie to ignore the third, fourth, and fifth films. Basically, you jump from Terminator 2 to Terminator Dark Fate. It's directed by Tim Miller, who I think Tim Miller, I think it's Tim Miller, who directed Deadpool, the first Deadpool movie. And it's got it's got James Cameron involved as a creative consultant or a story consultant or something like that. He contributed to the story. It's got Linda Hamilton in it, coming back as Sarah Connor, who we haven't seen since 1991. It's got Schwarzenegger in it. It's got you know spectacular special effects and action sequences and stuff like that nobody sees it it bombs it makes like 30 million dollars its first weekend and it cost i think 200 million dollars to make and it didn't get better from there the third movie was a reboot of charlie's angels written produced written and directed by elizabeth banks who i love i love elizabeth banks she's very funny i follow her on facebook she's very funny she posts a lot of videos they're cute and it bombs nobody sees it and with Terminator Dark Fate and with Charlie's Angels, there's a subtext, and although not really a subtext, there is a subtext for Terminator, but in Charlie's Angels, Elizabeth Banks comes flat out right out and says it's because of sexism, misogyny. Her movie bombed because of misogyny. Men don't want to see action movies led by strong women, which is complete and total bullshit. Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, all the alien movies that had Sigourney Weaver in them, shit. Terminator, Terminator 2. Now granted, nobody went and saw Terminator Dark Fate, but that's for completely different reasons. There are tons of examples of exciting action movies led by women, about with women in leading role. There just are. So, and then with Terminator Dark Fate, it was about the the three the the three primary characters are all women. Um, there's uh, Linda Hamilton, obviously, is reprising a role as Sarah Connor, who's like totally badass in that movie she's like the best supposedly from what i've heard i've not seen the movie but from what i've heard she's the best part of the movie linda hamilton has a there's something about playing sarah connor that brings out the best in linda hamilton evidently i've seen her in other roles she ain't great you get a chance 1985 king kong lives starring linda hamilton 
Let me just say there was a female Kong with breasts. Yeah, I digress. Linda Hamilton was Sarah Connor. There was the the, the female hero, uh, an actress who I'd seen, but I didn't know anything about. She plays some kind of augmented human. And then there's a younger actress who's like the, um, she's the MacGuffin. She's kind of the Sarah Connor from the first movie for this movie. Nobody goes and sees these movies and everybody's absolutely befuddled by why nobody goes and sees these movies. And, you know, why did these movies flop? You've got the Elizabeth Banks explanation that it's sexism and misogyny. Nobody wants to see an action movie about strong women, which is easily debunked. But it's clearly a matter of sour grapes because she not only directed the movie, she wrote the movie. This was her movie. This was her baby. She was involved in every aspect of it. She wrote it. She produced it. She directed it. She was involved in the casting. It had Kristen Stewart in it, who was really the only high-profile actress in the movie. Honestly, the Kristen Stewart casting feels like stunt casting because nobody's seen or heard Kristen Stewart since the Twilight movies. And she's kind of she's kind of done the indie, low-profile indie film type of thing. Robert Pattinson's done the same thing, except for now he's about to be Batman, which I'm the more and more I think about it, the more and more I'm looking forward to. They've kind of, they've they both of them wanted to get away have done everything they can to get away from those type of movies um, at all cost to establish their cred as actors. And now that they've done so, now they're going to start testing the waters with your more in more franchise fare. And you've seen this with other actors. Michael Douglas is in the Ant-Man movies. Shit, Jeff Bridges, Jeff Bridges was the villain in the first Iron Man movie. Josh Brolin, it was Thanos. You've got Robin Wright and Wonder Woman. Shit, I'm sure there's others I'm not even thinking of. Man, I'm drawing a complete blank. But you've had other actors, quote unquote actors, high profile actors doing, I mean, shit, Charlize Theron did uh, one of the Fast and Furious movies, and I think she's doing the next one too. You know, she's won an Oscar for Best Actress. She's been nominated multiple times. Nicole Kidman was Aquaman's mom. So, but you had Kristen Stewart in it, who's the only actress, the only known actress in that movie. The other two actors, the other two angels, nobody knew about. They're lesser known or unknown. You had Elizabeth Banks, Banks herself playing Bosley, but nobody saw that movie. And then when nobody saw Terminator Dark Fate, nobody saw Doctor Sleep. And everybody's like, why did these movies bomb? Why did they flop? Well, the obvious reason is that nobody wanted to see them. I mean, that's the obvious explanation. But the question is, why didn't anybody want to see them? And I think you're starting to see this. You're starting to see this with summer. We're starting to see with see with this with the summer movies. And I think you started to see this a few years ago with I think you saw it with Star Trek Beyond in 16. I think you saw it with Solo in 17. And I think you're starting to see it more and more. Now, you saw it with the DC films before Wonder Woman, and you're starting to see it more and more. You saw it quite a bit this summer, with a couple of notable exceptions. And that's quite frankly is franchise fatigue. Ooh, good ex- oh, here's a good example. Blade Runner 2049. A sequel to a 30-year-old movie. Nobody saw it. because, And nobody saw the first movie. Nobody saw the original Blade Runner. Blade Runner became a success became a cult Blade Runner became a cult classic because of VHS video well it's one thing to spend three dollars two or three dollars on a movie that you go watch at your house and then return to the video store that's one thing it's another completely different amount of effort to go to a movie theater to watch that exact same movie that's what Blade Runner was nobody saw that movie in the theater it bombed 
It was ponderous, it was slow, it didn't make much sense, there was no real narrative to it. It was gorgeous to look at, but that's about it. And then they made a sequel to it, which was ponderous and slow and didn't make a lot of sense, and was way too damn long and nobody wanted to see it, and it bombed. But you've seen this over the years, last few years, franchise fatigue. Everybody's swinging for the, everybody, every studio wants their own franchise. So you see all kinds of reboots. You've seen this with horror movies, a shit ton of horror movies. You know, they did a reboot of, of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. They did a free a reboot of uh, Friday the 13th. They'd done, I mean, how many attempted reboots at Halloween have they done? They, there was the Rob Zombie movies. And then there was the one that came out last year with Jamie Lee Curtis that, that was successful. And they're making a sequel to that. There's nobody's doing a lot of original content that people want to see or they're not doing a lot of original content period and the stuff that they keep rehashing nobody wants to see there are exceptions of course comic book movies the mcu is just unparalleled because they have a track record that they started 11 years ago with the first iron man movie and they built upon that and those movies are they're entertaining they're they're fun they're funny they have a sense of humor. Yeah, the story's serious and it's about the end of the world and all this kind of stuff, but it's funny. They do a really great job of casting. They do a really great job of picking the right directors, the right stories, and they and the and so forth. The whole Infinity Saga started with the first Iron Man, ended with Endgame. Everything in between was in was in service of that saga in some form or fashion. But at the same time, You've got inspired casting of Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, inspired casting of Chris Evans as Captain America, and they nailed the best thing that they did was get Captain America right. Because if Cap doesn't work, the rest of it's not going to work as well. But it's the MCU built something. So when you go to a Marvel movie, and then you saw it with Brie Larson, the inspired casting of Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. She's wonderful in that movie. Her repartee with Samuel L. Jackson is wonderful. The brief moments that she's in an endgame at the end when she talks to uh, Spider-Man, she's just, she has like a handful of lines and she's just wonderful. I have a very weak spot for Brie Larson. I'll just put that out there. But the MCU is the exception. The DC universe, starting with Wonder Woman, got its footing because it wasn't Superman. It wasn't Batman. We've seen that where we want to see something new and you got Perfect casting with Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Then you go into Aquaman and you have perfect casting of Jason Momoa as Aquaman. Now, Justice League didn't work because Zack Snyder and Warner Brothers, is they don't know what the fuck they're doing. But with Jason Momoa as Aquaman, inspired casting, funny movie. It's a very funny movie. Wonder Woman is a funny movie in spots. Um, Gal Gadot is by far the best part of that movie. Then you get Shazam, which I haven't seen yet, but from what I've heard is very entertaining. And those movies are fun. Dr. Sleep is not a fun movie. Dr. Sleep is a sequel to The Shining. The Shining is not a fun movie. The Shining is a fucked up horror movie. And truth be told is The Shining is a fucked up horror movie that tells you more about Stanley Kubrick than it does about Stephen King's novel. It was a movie that was made 37, 38 years ago. Okay, Stephen King writes a sequel for it, writes a novel for it. And okay, it makes sense to try to make a movie on it because it's Stephen King and Stephen King has a certain cachet. But Stephen King movies suck ass, with the exception of The Shining, Shawshank, and The Green Mile, Oh, and The Mist. Yeah, you can say maybe Carrie's a good movie, but I don't think so, because I think Brian De Palma has issues. But that's just me. Why did these movies flop? 
And it's because of franchise fatigue. Terminator Dark Fate is entirely because of franchise fatigue. By that point, you're at the sixth movie and the three previous movies were just dumpster fires. Terminator Genesis, I got through the first 30 minutes of it and I couldn't watch anymore. It was so stupid. The casting was wrong. The script was awful. The direction was awful. The special effects were awful. The whole damn thing. And I just got through the first 30 minutes of it was a shit show. Terminator Salvation wasn't as bad, but... It's still, it's directed by McG, which is your first mistake. Ironically, McG directed the first two Charlie's Angels movies. It's not really about John Connor, but it's kind of about John Connor. And it doesn't line up with the future that we saw in the first two Terminator movies. It doesn't line up with Cameron's vision um, in any way, shape or form. It's got a convoluted storyline. The action sequences aren't particularly interesting at all. There's nothing, there's nothing inspired about that movie. Terminator 3, The Rise of the Machines, is of the three post-T2 movies, is clearly the best of the three. But you have, a, in each successive movie after T2, the product goes further and further downhill, dramatically. So that by the time you get the Terminator Dark Fate, yeah, it's got all this cachet, it's got Linda Hamilton back, it's got the involvement of James Cameron in it, in some ambiguous fashion. But by the time you get to the movie, nobody wants to see it. What new are you going to show me? And it's essentially the same movie as the other movies. Terminator goes back in time to kill John Connor. To kill somebody. You know what? Go back and try to kill Sarah Connor when she's a baby. Go back to the, you know, late 60s. Make a hippie era Terminator movie. Or just start over. Reboot the fucking thing. If you have to. If you've got a new and original idea about this type of movie, do that. About this type of story, do that. But they didn't. They just rehashed everything that had been done before. Except for everybody just looked older. Okay, well, nobody's going to want to go see that. Okay, if you're going to do a reboot, you've got to do something different. Something different enough and unique enough and interesting enough to get people's attention. Nobody watched the first Battlestar Galactica when it came out in 1979. Most expensive television show ever made, it lasted a season. Why? Because they thought, you know, the only reason they made the show is because of the special effects. The stories weren't particularly great. Come back 25 years later, you get the Battlestar Galactica reboot, which completely reimagines the entire world, except for three things. The Battlestars, the fighters, the Cylons, and some of the main characters. Their names, anyway. Or, not really their names, their call signs. Everything else is completely different. They're complete. Even the characters are completely different. Adama and... The 79 BSG is not Edwards James Olmos's Adama. Not even, they're not even remotely close to each other. Starbuck is different. Apollo is different. None of these characters are exactly the same. Baltar. Oh my God, Baltar. The Cylons are different. The entire premise is different. When you do something like that, it works. If you're just going to rehash the same thing over and over and over again, because you've got better special effects, or you're going to tweak something a little bit, you can't do that when it's the sixth goddamn film. You can do that if you're making Lethal Weapon. And then when you get to Charlie's Angels, it's a movie that nobody asked for. It's kind of like Solo. When they made Solo, and they was like, we're going to make a Han Solo prequel. I'm like, why? You're making a Han Solo prequel without Harrison Ford. Why? Nobody cares about that character. Everybody cares about Harrison Ford as that character. It's like if they were to do a reboot of Indiana Jones with anybody other than Harrison Ford. I mean, unless you got the casting exactly perfectly right, it wouldn't work. It just wouldn't. You might as well just make a different movie and not have it be Indiana Jones. Same type of movie, same style of movie. Hell, even the, you could even do it in the same time period. 
but it can't be Indiana Jones because Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. It's like doing a Rocky movie without Stallone. Now, they did get clever about that because they basically did a Rocky movie without Stallone, except for Stallone's in it, but he's not playing Rocky. It's called Creed and Creed 2. And it worked. People saw it. Great movies. When you get to a reboot of Charlie's Angels, it's like, who is asking for this? And the conceit was with Charlie's Angels, the kind of the, I think it was part of the marketing was that this is a Charlie's Angels and meant for, this is a feminist Charlie's Angels. Okay. Who wants a feminist Charlie's Angels? One, who wants Charlie's Angels at all? And two, who wants a feminist Charlie's Angels? If you want to make a statement about feminism, is Charlie's Angels really the vehicle by which you do that? You can do that or you should do that. And then from what I understand, the reviews haven't been that bad. You know, the, the feminine, they're a little heavy handed on the feminism and the sisterhood type of thing in certain spots from what I understand. But that's probably that's writing and directing is what that is. One, who wants to see a Charlie's Angels movie? If you're going to do a Charlie's Angels movie, okay, doing a feminist version or a feminist, feminist centric version of Charlie's Angels is not different enough. Because if you look at the Charlie's Angels TV show, and if you look at the Charlie's Angels, the first two Charlie's Angels movies, it's all about three women kicking ass in various ways. There's only so many different ways you can do a movie about three women kicking ass, especially if the characters themselves aren't particularly interesting. And I've seen episodes of the Charlie's Angels TV show. I've seen both Charlie's Angels movies with Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, and Lucy Liu Hennem. There's no character there for any in any of that. They're there to move forward a plot. But there's no character development. There's no arcs. There's no depth. They're just, they're there. It's there. The movies especially are there to be fun and tongue in cheek. They're almost comedies. But if you're going to do a Charlie's Angels movie, you know, do something unique, original, and different. Don't do a, we're going to tell, we're going to do Charlie's Angels from a feminist point of view. Well, Charlie's Angels is already pretty much a feminist movie because it's about three women kicking ass. Now, granted, they work for a guy named Charlie, but there's no indication that He's abusing them, taking advantage of them, exploiting them. You know, they're not slaves. They're not indentured to him. Doesn't have leverage on them or blackmailing them or extorting them or anything like that. They do so out of their own volition. Helen, the, the, the premise of the original TV series was that Charlie picked up these three women who tried to make it in the police force but couldn't because they were looked down upon as women. Charlie saw their potential as, as heroes and ignored the fact that they were women and not really ignored the fact that they were women, but he said, you know what, you guys, you, do, you don't know what you're, you don't know what you're passing up here. And he took them in and he gave them the opportunity to, to show what they could do. That's the premise of Charlie's Angels. It's in the introduction to the show. So for Elizabeth Banks to go out there and say that nobody saw my movie because the studio didn't back it or because of misogyny or because of sexism. No, it's because you made a movie nobody wanted to see. The same with Terminator. They made a movie that nobody wanted to see. And from the reviews I read and everything like that, it's not even all that interesting or original. It's not, it's not, there's nothing new or original about it. If you're going to do the sixth Terminator movie, you have to do something dramatically different because the cachet, it's not like doing Star Wars or Star Trek. The fan base for a Terminator movie just isn't there. And you can see that by the fact that people saw Terminator 3 a lot fewer people saw Terminator Salvation and even fewer people saw Terminator Genesis. So it's not the franchise. It's not a franchise. It's people want to see Jim Cameron's Terminator. And Jim Cameron said, I'm done. I told the stories I needed to tell. I was done by the second movie so that he could go on and make a half dozen Avatar movies, which are going to absolutely bomb because nobody wants to see them. You talk about a movie that is not held up over time. 
and it's only 10 years old. With Dr. Sleep, nobody wanted to see that movie because nobody wanted to see a sequel to The Shining. Because the only reason anybody went and saw The Shining was because of Jack Nicholson. Okay, so you don't have Jack Nicholson. He obviously died at the end of that movie. Spoiler. And it's about Danny, the least interesting character in the movie. And nobody remembers the book, The Shining. So nobody's going to be, I don't know if anybody read Dr. Sleep, the book, the sequel to The Shining. But if you're going to make a movie about that, you know, do some kind of stunt casting or something where you've gotten, somehow you get Nicholson involved, which isn't going to happen because Nicholson has essentially retired. I'm not even sure if he goes to Laker games anymore. If they were going to see it, they were going to expecting a sequel to Kubrick's The Shining, which is what you don't get. It's not a horror. Dr. Sleep, from what I understand, is not a horror movie. And then you couple that with the fact that It Chapter 2 was coming out around the same time, which from what I understand did not do as well as It Chapter 1. But you've got two Stephen King properties really, really close together, and people are going to decide which one do I want to see, the sequel, the follow-up to a high, hugely successful novel from 35 years ago which was everybody remembers from the miniseries and then it's also the follow-up to the movie that came out two years ago that was highly successful that everybody wanted to see or are you going to go see this half-assed sequel to the shining that doesn't have jack nicholson in it are you going to spend 12.50 a ticket to go see that no so why do movies flop because nobody wants to see them why doesn't anybody want to see them? Well, in these, the particular case of these three movies, it's because they're franchise fatigue. They're all franchise. They're all part of a franchise of a sort. Some more so than others. And that's all studios are trying to do is get a franchise out there. And people are getting kind of tired of it. They want, if you're going to do a spectacle, do a new and original spectacle. Something people haven't seen before. Or if you're going to do a reboot or if you're going to do a continuation of some kind, do something so unique and different that people will want to see it. And that's just not happening. It certainly didn't happen in these three movies. Come up with something new and original. If you're going to do a Terminator movie, come up with something new and original. If you're going to do Charlie's Angels, flip the script. Make it a... Here's an idea. Make the angels African-American women. And Charlie is... Ooh, Lawrence Fishburne is Charlie. Oh, the voice. Because all Charlie is is a voice. You could do Sam Jackson, but that would be too obvious. Lawrence Fishburne would be a good Charlie. Do that. Give... Give an African-American female director Charlie's Angels. Do with that what Marvel did with Black Panther. Give it to Ryan Coogler and say, who gave it to Ryan Coogler and said, okay, here's the basic parameters. Go make your movie. Do that with Charlie's Angels, except for African-American actresses playing the angels, an African-American female director writing it and directing it. Just say, here's, here's the basic concept. Go do with it what you want. Make your movie. That would have been interesting and different. People would have seen that movie. Shit, people would have gone to see Tyler Perry's Charlie's Angels. Hell, you could have done Medea as Charlie in that instance. That would have been interesting. Or as Bosley. That would have been interesting too. Something different. If you're going to do Terminator, honestly, I think you have to reboot the franchise. Go back to the original source material and start over. Give it to somebody who the guy, the director who, um, Matt Reeves, who did the Planet of the Apes movies, that Planet of the Apes trilogy, give it to him. He's about to do the Batman. So I'm really excited. Give it to him. Say, we're going to give you Terminator. What do you have? Give it to Ryan Coogler. Give it to Jordan Peele. Give Terminator to Jordan Peele. He did Get Out. He did Us. He did the reboot of the Twilight Zone. There's a guy who could do an amazing work with 
the premise of Terminator. He could do to Terminator what Ron Moore did to Battlestar Galactica. Do that, but don't don't do a retread. Do something unique and different. Everybody, when The Force Awakens came out, and everybody, one of the complaints was is that it didn't have enough of Luke Han and Leia in it. Luke Han and Leia are old. If you waited ten or twenty years to do another trilogy with Luke Han and Leia instead of waiting. 32 years you could have done a, a, a trilogy centered on them you could have but but 32 years later you've got to do something unique and different and abrams jj abrams and lucasfilm understood that so it worked but if you're going to do a franchise movie be creative be inventive be original with it and if you can't be those things don't do it come up with something different Come things come up with a completely new idea. Come up with your own franchise. Do what J.K. Rowling did with Harry Potter. Come up with that. Don't try to do another Terminator movie or another Charlie's Angels. So, those are my rants. What do you think? As always, comments, questions, criticisms, and concerns about this episode, any of the previous episodes, the show in general, or I as your host in particular, is always wanted, appreciated, and desired, even if you're telling me to go fuck myself, which surprisingly hasn't happened yet, not even by the people that know me. I want to hear what you think, and here's how you can do it. The Twitter handle is at I have so many pod. Send me a comment, send me a DM, slide into my DMs if you want. Email address is I have questions podcast at gmail.com. You can send me an email. If you go to the anchor to the uh, to the show's homepage on anchor.fm, you can leave me a voice message. There's a little button on the homepage that says leave voice message and you can just talk away. I don't think there's a time limit or anything like that. Facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. Once you're done leaving me your feedback, your constructive criticism, your insults, your death threats, or a combination of all of those, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcast at. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your in-laws. Tell everyone to listen to this show, if only to appreciate the absurdity with which I pursue it. This has been I Have So Many Questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time, for your patronage. Good night, Cleveland. hot tea and cold cases two best friends spilling the hot tea on all the cold cases i'm alexa and i'm Allie. join us as we uncover the world's most interesting cold cases are you a true crime lover and a fan of the paranormal tune in every other week for our sub-series hot tea and frosty hauntings where we discuss all things haunted and spooky you can find us on our website at hotteacoldcasespodcast.com. Join us for some true crime drama, 
crazy theories, and creepy hauntings. <laughs> and most importantly, all of our best friend shenanigans. Until next time. Allie and Alexa. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using audio from 911 calls, interrogations, trial testimony and interviews, Morbidology takes a look at some of the most mysterious and disturbing crimes from all across the world. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. From shocking murders to missing children, we focus on a variety of cases and put you, the listener, right into the middle of the investigation. Listen to Morbidology now on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean and wherever else you get your podcasts.